This episode is brought to you by Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com, A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Tap the banner or visit this episode's page to learn more. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Shouldn't you be at work? It's a lovely chip! Oh, it's a brilliant goal! From Lord Bohinan! Still it's not away. Southgate shot. Milosevic scores. DPR could do with a bit of magic from him. Maybe this is it. It is! Andy Sinton from nothing. Brian Roy has headed for his interlead. Whelan. Oh, what a goal from Noel Whelan. No power on it whatsoever. But Saibi has made a horrendous error. Now, you know him better than anybody, probably. Do you back him to score quickly, yes or no? Yes. Only oh, Hassan. No. Hello and welcome to Quickly Kevin. Will he score? We are back. I'm Chris Gold. Joining me, as always, Josh Whittacombe. Hello. And never mind Alf Stewart. Here's a man who's always home and away. It's Michael Marden. Oh, lovely. Hello. Did you used to watch Home and Away? Yeah, I was a big fan. No, never. Never? All right, Skull, I always, I always saw it as the poor man's neighbours. Yeah, but but you could have both. <laughs> <laughs> could you, though? It'd In the same way that you could buy day. match and shoot to, a, to <laughs> play to what we were discussing today with our guest. Um, Home and Away wasn't as good, but it was... Um, it took itself a bit too seriously compared to Neighbours, I felt. Yeah, it wasn't as not as tongue-in-cheek. No, no, exactly. Oh, it's sad that Neighbours is ending, isn't it? Is it, though? <laughs> <laughs> well, not really. When was the last time anyone watched it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's a bit like finding out a band split up 20 years after you stopped buying their albums. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, anyway, shall we just get on with it? I think that's the easiest way to start the show, isn't it? Yeah. Do you want a bit of 90s clock news to kick us off? Why not? Headquarters of ITN News at 10 with Chris Scott. Top story this week Andy Gray and Richard Keyes have no sense of the passage of time. <laughs> the top story this week. Now. Yep. Sounds okay. absolutely up my street. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Who wants to take this question on? Uh, Michael, when was Tony Blair Prime Minister? Uh, he was elected in May 1997. Just a I'll, I'll, I'll make it easy for you. What decade was Tony Blair? Well, two did he decades. become prime minister? Okay, oh, did become... when did he become prime minister? Ninety-seven into the noughties. I don't know okay. when he was right. removed or left power. Removed. <laughs> I'll see if you're right in a second. Uh, Joshua, you want to take a guess? Yeah, he was ninety-seven to two thousand seven, I think, or two thousand eight, hmm, two thousand seven. Okay. Okay, well, let's just say you've got a different recollection to Andy Gray and also Richard Keyes. Let's have a listen. Let's have a listen in. Thank you to Andy Pellman who's pointed this out to me. Here's, here's Andy Gray recollecting the Prime Ministerial reign of Tony Blair. Looking forward to this. Uh, I thought something ended as Blair as Prime Minister. That was what, 70s? 
There you go. So uh, just to clear that up, to join one more time, do you want to hear it one more time? Yeah. Was it about the thoughts of independence votes when Blair was Prime Minister? That was what, 70s? Mm. 70s, 80s? Was he Prime Minister? When was it? Richard Keyes is going with 80s, 90s. So, questions. Is Richard Keyes, and I don't think he's got this maybe with himself, being polite by saying <laughs> 80s, 90s he's to Andy to- Gray? He's prepared to nudge him a decade in the right direction, but yeah, not like, point you know out he's mean, 20 like, years wrong. 70s, 80s. So, so what is Andy... <laughs> so when does he think Margaret Thatcher was in power? The 60s? <laughs> like, seven... That is one of the most incredible clips I've ever heard. Because that means Andy Gray has... Who would have been, during the height of Tony Blair, would have been in his Sky Sports pomp. His most powerful. But he's managed to blur that with the period when he played for Everton and Aston Villa. <laughs> so, so Andy Gray, born in 55. So he's 20 years old in the mid-70s. And he, in his mind, Tony Blair was the prime minister then. Plus, who's that? Is that Ted Heath? What year is that? That's yeah, crazy. Ted Heath, Harold Wilson, um, James Callaghan uh, is the kind of people that he's confusing Tony Blair with. So, so I want to know, does he think the issues that occurred with Tony Blair happened in the 70s and 80s? <laughs> does he think we evaded Iraq in 1979? <laughs> or, or does he think Tony Blair was in power for the three-day week? I don't... What's, what, like, what's, this, what's going on here? You mean you haven't seen that video of Margaret Thatcher and Kevin Keegan doing Keep You Up It's... <laughs> things go so so who's he filling post Blair how's he filling the 35 years in Britain's history so was Ronald Reagan during the late 80s when the Soviet Union fell was that led by Ronald Reagan Reagan was 2009 on this timeline (laughs) but did the Berlin Wall fall during the reign of Theresa May? Like, how's this... No, like, on this timeline, what's that? That's 2010, the Berlin Wall came down. Well, do you know what's quite scary the... about this? Is when the first thing they do when they come out... Of, you know when if you had, like, a head injury, they go, who's the president? Yeah. Like, so, but, but on Andy Gray's timeline, you'd never get it right. No, of you'd, course. You're two decades out all the time. So, I've just got to ask, what are they talking about? <laughs> like, what's this from? Why are they so, talking about this? It looks like it's a clip from 2017. So that's even more confusing because less time has elapsed. That was during Theresa May being Prime Minister, so there's been one less Prime Minister. The only Prime Ministers between the clip and Tony Blair are David Cameron and Gordon Brown. So, so <laughs> he thinks since the 80s, Gordon Brown and David Cameron have, have been in charge of Britain for 35 years. <laughs> and... But does he think that Blair took over in the 70s and carried and carried on until the noughties? Has he confused the words 90s and 70s? No, I, I, I suspect ultimately Blair has said something 
politically that they don't agree with you know i don't know if there was sort of brexit chat eu chat around then maybe blair, blair hasn't come out against the qatar world cup has he i mean possibly like, they're, they're absolute keys is absolute achilles heel <laughs> yeah he said something mean about his blog um <laughs> and I, I suspect andy gray is being willfully obtuse to sort of dig at blair's irrelevance he doesn't even yeah. remember when he was in power Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which, let's be honest, if you're Andy Gray and you're having a go at someone, the the attack route shouldn't be, they used to be more powerful than they are now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, this guy's an absolute dinosaur who is not relevant today. <laughs> this person's a complete irrelevance these days. He's not your attack route if you're Keys and Gray. So... Is there any way of finding out what the wider conversation was, Chris? No, or, I'm afraid I've only got that clip. Can we put that out to our listeners? If anyone knows where this clip comes from, I don't know if, <laughs> ideally, Qatar has its own version of question time that this is from. That would be the <laughs> ideal scenario. <laughs> Hosted by Keys and Gray. Yeah, and if anyone um, could add anything to this timeline, just help us understand yeah. what's going on in Andy Gray's head. Yeah, if you could send in your, your timelines of what major world events happened, <laughs> who was Prime Minister, and how that tallied with Andy Gray's life as well. Then um, that would be ideal. That is one of the great clips of all time. And we talked to someone who uh, today who uh, worked on Fantasy Football League, and that would have been an absolutely perfect clip for it. Okay, do you want some correspondence that's not going to live up to that clip because that is just a (laughs) highlight of my life? Do do, do you know what? It's not often we get to wheel it out, but let's let's end that little segment on... uh, the Richard Keys jingle. Oh, why not? Why not? It, 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 it was just banter. It, 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 it was just banter. 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 It was just banter. 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 It's just a little bit of fun. Okay. Hi team. First time, long time, love the show. Whilst the topic of this email isn't strictly or at all 90s related, the central character is a key figure in the period of time. Maybe not to Andy Gray, though, obviously. The question I ask you, Chris, is when was Terry Venables the manager of England? 70s, 80s? Was that when Terry Venables was in charge of England? There or thereabouts. There or thereabouts. Right. The attached letter is something that was the subject of many a childhood tale, but I'd always dismissed it as, surely, this just being a funny coincidence. It wasn't until recently laid eyes on the precious family heirloom for myself that it made me feel foolish. The use of the England and Spurs logo forming a fantastically boastful letterhead can leave no doubt in my mind that this is, in fact, a letter to my grandfather from Terry Venables requesting if he has any scrap or unwanted metal. <laughs> the date of the letter suggests that this was just before his move to QPR when he was 26 years old and he was at the absolute peak of his playing power. I know money wasn't quite what it is today, but surely a professional footballer isn't humping scrap metal for cash to get by. We're obviously all aware of Tan Sega's tie emporium, but this begs the question, are any of your listeners aware of other brilliant football side hustles? Would you two like to see the letter? Yes. Here you go. 
Chris, would you like to describe the letter and read oh, it out? Wow. It's a little bit folded. It looks like it's been written on a typewriter. Is there a date on it? It's from the Terry Venables Organisation Limited. 17 yep. Elm Street, London, WC1. Dear Sirs, I would like to purchase for immediate payment any of your products which may be either obsolete or surplus to your requirements. We have very good export outlets. I am able to come and inspect the goods almost any afternoon during the week. I would be glad to hear from you. Yours faithfully, Terry Venables. July the 3rd, 1969. And at the top of the letterhead is the, the England crest and the Tottenham crest. Isn't that incredible? That's what. Well, he, he is literally a wheeler dealer. Yeah, I love the uh, the detail that it makes me clear. It is Terry Venables. Is he's free any afternoon during the week because he's a footballer, obviously. Uh, training in the morning, free in the afternoons. Third yeah. of July, nineteen sixty nine. In the that summer as well. One of the most beautiful things you've ever seen in your life. That's amazing, isn't it? H- have you seen the Terry Venables documentary? No. They, they allude to in that they allude to the fact that he had loads of side hustles. So this completely checks out. I think he had a soup business as well. I think he had all kinds of interests. I think this is legit. That's incredible, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely incredible. Now, if you have any correspondence, this is how to get in touch. Get in touch with the show. Email hello at quicklykevin.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at quicklykevin. And sign up to the mailing list at quicklykevin.com. Now, our guest this week is an absolute legend of the, uh, not just the 90s football scene, but basically football in the UK in the last 35 years. He's been at the top of the tree of football coverage in the UK since David Cameron came to power. (laughs) Here is Paul Hawksby. Okay, quite simply, the three of us on the Quickly Kevin side of things have been fans of everything our guest this week has ever done. With his pal Andy Jacobs, he has hosted the brilliant Hawksby and Jacobs show on TalkSport for over 20 years. Before that, in 1990, he co-founded the absolutely sensational 90 Minutes magazine, while also finding time in the 90s to bring Fantasy Football League with Badil and Skinner onto the nation's screens. It's our pleasure to welcome to Quickly Kevin, Paul Hawksby. Hello, guys. How are you? Very good. Very good. 90s football royalty, Josh. We've got 90s football royalty. (laughs) Yes. And and well, you know what? You you took you you began on Talk Sport or Talk Radio, as it was called, uh, in 2000. So um, Mm -hmm. we will not be talking to you about that. We have no interest. No, okay. I, un- I understand. I know, I know how the podcast works. When you start straying, when you start straying into those areas. A lot of angry emails going, I did not sign up to hear about talk radio in 2001. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, so let's start. Um, what, do you know what? Because we're going to talk to you about um, magazines and um, television. I suppose what's quite interesting mm-hmm. is, as a child, what uh, what football magazines did you read to start with? Wow, I, I had um, I had some older cousins who gave me, passed me down all these Charles Buchan's football monthly books. Oh yeah, and uh, I used to get I used to get kind of soccer annuals, football annuals, but I remember those old 
fifties and sixties ones with those really pushed, colorized photographs. Yeah, you probably. I mean, they're, they're ancient history for you guys, but they used to kind of sort of hand color in the photographs. Oh to yeah, make I'm, them more yeah, vibrant. Yeah, I'm looking at them now, and they always looked like the players had a bit of rouge on. They were kind of very, yeah. very odd, a very odd look, a very strange thing, and that kind of got me into became a bit of a football anorak looking at all these old pictures of John Charles and Stan Matthews, and then. Uh, my mum would buy me a little football annual every year. And I, I suppose it probably would have been like everybody else. It would have been when shoot came along, mm. uh, you know, you'd get seduced by the league ladders, you know, oh. a free gift like that. And those little bits of cardboard, I was just seduced. And that was it. That'd be all. Did you stick? I, I don't know anyone that did league ladders beyond September. No, <laughs> that was it, wasn't it? A couple would fall down the back of the bed yeah. and you'd never see them again. And like years later, I'll answer, when you move, you'd find Blackburn Rovers sort of curled up in the corner. What was um, what was shoot like in those days? Was it, I mean, was it how kind of I remember it from the 90s? Was it a kind of proper exciting kids football magazine? I don't think it was. No, I think it was. I think the kind of guys who worked on those magazines didn't have an eye to a kid's market. Right. Um, in fact, I've, I've I had a fascinating chat with Chris Davis, who was a journalist on The Telegraph for many years. And he started the uh, in-focus things, you know, the kind of player questionnaires they always oh, did. Oh, yeah. What, like favourite food and all that? Yeah. And the reason that he did it, they did it to collect numbers. He worked on shoot men. Yeah. And they thought, what a perfect way to say, we just want to send you these. Uh, want to send you these questionnaires. Can we get an address? Can we get? I think obviously the days before yeah. pre-agents, and it wasn't difficult. So they used it as a kind of uh, an intelligence gathering thing. We just want to have a oh, wow. phone call about these questions. <laughs> so it, it wasn't a. We've got a great idea for a feature, so we can ask footballers yeah. about their favourite films and what they think they'd be if they weren't footballers. They did it just to kind of collect lots of numbers and addresses so they could contact players and do features with them. Oh, but, wow. Uh, it wasn't – I think the focus was different. I think it was a, maybe a maybe a slightly more adult staff and the stuff was written probably in a bit of a tabloid style, really, if I remember rightly. Yeah. And then um, at the time as well, obviously – there'd have been much less football on TV. You're part of the kind of football on TV 90s boom. What kind of football mm. on TV were you watching then? Well, I'm basically just highlights. I mean, you know, I, I remember when they first started showing live games. Only live games. It sounds like real ancient history. The only live games were, were the FA Cup final, really, and the European Cup finals. But you got very, very little live football. You were totally reliant on uh, on highlights um and that's just got the, and not even extensive highlights mm. they probably have one main game and then a couple of other matches if you were lucky maybe one other match on match of the day and i lived in london so i'd get brian moore on the big match and uh, sometimes they'd lead with i don't know sort of reading versus whoever swindon you'd get a game from sort of division four <laughs> and that'd be the feature match <laughs> and then you'd get a bit of commentary you get 30 seconds of commentary of Hugh Johns doing the Manchester Derby, but you'd, you'd get twenty minutes of of Reading. It was just <laughs> there were mad times. There was no, there was none of that sort of the sort of starry aspect to it. If that was a good game, that got top billing. Well, do, do you know what um, the the kind of I don't know whether I imagine all for obviously you're we've got a Tottenham fan and a uh, and a West Ham fan. And a man you found mm. here, you won't have this, but Plymouth Argyle message boards are besieged with people uh, who are angry that they think 
TV companies are unwilling to travel further to go and cover Plymouth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. oh, that's so, so Reading are getting a lot of coverage because that's so near London. They, a real chip <laughs> on our shoulder about Brighton getting a lot of coverage because people enjoy a weekend <laughs> out in Brighton <laughs> from London. Because ITV was all regional, you yeah. could get that thing where you could suddenly have the feature match could be yeah. a Southampton game or something like that because they were just picking up on the region. Right. So I think they weren't too bad. It wasn't. I don't think it was a case of it's just down the road from the ITV studios. I think they did sort of share the love affair, but a lot of Ipswich, and you kind of got married to all these. All these commentators had their own patch, oh. and so you knew if it was a Manchester United game, it was going to be Gerald Sinstack, <laughs> or if it was going to be. You know, it's this Jerry Harrison, the man yeah. who strode the Midlands like a colossus, and he'd sort of he'd stray, he'd stray into a bit of uh, Ipswich now and again, and uh, yeah, it was just. Oh. I mean, these guys were like, like the sort of gods when you were growing up. These voices of uh, football highlights. Yeah. Do you remember the first piece of like football content that made you laugh? Like the first piece of television or something that showed the funny side of football. I, I do, Christian. There's, you've got to find it. It was the first time anybody really had tried to be funny about football. And I, it was either the 70 World Cup or the 74 World Cup. I've got a feeling it was the 70 World Cup. But when we did Fantasy World Cup, we revisited all of those panels. They used to have these fantastic ITV panels. Brian Moore was the ringmaster, but you'd have Jack Charlton, Derek Dugan, uh, sometimes Tommy Doherty, all these kind of Malcolm big Allison. guys who were still playing. Malcolm Allison, yeah. Brian Clough, would he have been on there? Cloughy, yeah, Cloughy's gone there. And you'd get these, they'd have a proper argument <laughs> and it'd get very heated and they'd disagree. And we watched some line feed stuff that ITV had, stuff that didn't go out. And they were swearing at each other, getting really, really upset with each other. So that was fantastic. They carry on once the game had started, steaming into each other. But they did this thing, and Brian Moore introduced it, and he said something like, well, uh, you know, the boys in the gallery have decided to have a little bit of fun. So uh, they've come up with this uh, little tribute to the players in this World Cup. And all they did, they played this song called Gimme That Ding. I don't know if you've ever heard the song oh, before. I know. Give, me that, old, give me that, give me that, give me, give me that. That's the one. Yeah. And I don't know if this still exists on, on YouTube, but if, you, if it does, find it. So all they basically did was basically reverse and play forward bits of clips of footballers. So you'd put it a couple, you know, basically a couple of frames forward, and then they'd go backwards like they were dancing. You've seen, yeah. remember they used to kind of mess with new reel, newsreels during the Second World War? to make the you know Nazis look ridiculous by yeah. marching back and forwards to bits of old Spike Jones movies. And so that's what they did. They just basically reversed film, played it forward, played it backwards, played Gimme That Ding over it. And uh, <laughs> I think it was funny. It was, it was state of the art for 90. And they went back to the studio. I think Derek Dugan had literally wet himself. They were like in bits. All these hardened sort of elbows out strikers of the 70s. A crime we're after, but bits of old, bits of footage from this World Cup being played forward and then into reverse. It was just, but that was, but at the time it was, I mean, it was, it was brilliant. It was fantastic. And have you seen it? Did you, you found it for Fantasy World Cup, right? What did, had, had it stood the test of time? No, it was terrible. I mean, it's so, it's so, it's so primitive. It's just like one of those things you, you look back on and think, why, why was I laughing at that? I was probably because I was about nine. And it was so different. No one had ever really messed with it. No one went looking for funny stuff. There was no programs. There was no, obviously, no soccer AM, no fantasy football. 
No one, no one went looking for any yeah. things like when Saturday comes in print. No one looked for that. No one was interested. Everybody took football incredibly seriously. And that yeah. was the way it was meant to be. It wasn't there to have the piss taken out of it. It was a serious business. And did you at the time... Oh, one more thing on that. But we will come to fantasy football. But that's actually jogged to me in my head, which is that... Because obviously when you... that Those fantasy World Cups, when... Uh, fancy football moved to ITV and they mm. that they suddenly had loads of new clips from ITV one of the things was a thing called indoor league which was oh yeah and was that another thing from your youth that you'd gone we've got to find these clips of indoor league it was yeah i we had a meeting we were trying to we were i because when i i only worked on the world cup mm. show i came in on 98 andy who i do the radio show with andy produced every fantasy football show on the bbc mm. with frank and dave and I came on to, to do the World Cup. Right. And w- one of the first meetings with Frank and Dave and Andy, I just said, we've got to find the indoor league stuff. And Frank obviously remembered it from his youth as well. Fred Truman in that old jumper yeah. coming <laughs> on with a pint and his pipe. They said, now then, let's go for the Shovetni. And it was always from the, the league. It was from the Irish centre in Leeds. They recorded most of them. And they were, if people don't remember, they were basically pub games, bar billiards, they played darts. It was one of the first times sort of when darts and a lot of the names that we got to know in that sort of era of darts were playing in this tournament as well. But it was mad telly. And uh, I said to Frank, we've got to find it. It was only about four or five episodes that remained. And we mined them as much as we could <laughs> and to the point where we, the last Phoenix from the Flames was uh, Mrs. Loveday King uh, from the West Country. Oh, wow. Winning... Uh, she won the, the darts, the indoor league darts championship. This is Loveday King. And we tracked her down. Oh, wow. It was fantastic. She came in to do it with the late, great Anna Karen from On the Buses <laughs> playing, uh, <laughs> playing her friend. Uh, yeah, it's, I, that was just, that was fantastic. That was, uh, I felt my job, my work was done once she did that thing. <laughs> I might have misremembered that, but in my head, um, she was while playing darts holding her handbag, but that can't be. <laughs> I think at one point she probably was. It was, yeah, that was one of the maddest Phoenix. <laughs> uh, first time I saw clips of Indoor League, I, d- I thought it was fake. Because the, doesn't Fred yeah. Truman, he starts introducing the programme with, he's got like a pipe and a pint of lager. Like that's how the fir- yeah. that's like the first thing yeah. you see. I was like, it's, it's, be, it's almost yeah. like being on parody. It was amazing footage. So good. Well, he, yeah, that's right. He would wander in, wouldn't he? And he'd kind of lean on whatever, it, and he'd sort of say, now then. And then he'd sort of, get, there was no night. It was just like Freddie in real life. No niceties at all. He just straight in and he'd say, let's go. And, then, and at the end of it, his sign-off was, I'll see He'd say that at the end of every episode. It's the most Yorkshire thing what ever. What was it on? What was it slot? It, it used to go out um, before, I know you're a huge Neighbours fan, yeah. Josh, and before, but a kind of forerunner to Neighbours, a lot of kind of actors who maybe right. as kids ended up in, in Neighbours, a thing called The Sullivans. Right. And it was a... It was a kind of Australian soap set around the Second World War. Right. Uh, and that would go out, I think, at one o'clock. And then at 1.30, um, indoor, I think it was 1.30, indoor league would come, 1.30 in the afternoon. So that was a kind of school holiday right. thing. That's when you'd see it. So it wasn't an evening show. It, no. was, it was scheduled to go out at lunchtime. It was like daytime viewing. With a pint and a pipe <laughs> in daytime viewing. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's half past one. He's on it. He's got, got a pint of bitter going. That's yeah. scheduling is bad because it always felt like a Friday night. Whenever you see these clips, it's like it's late on yeah. in a pub. 
Like lunchtime. No, it stuck on lunchtime. And it was. It was the idea for it was. It was Sid Waddell. Sid oh, really? came up with this idea. Went to ITV and said, "I think Yorkshire made it." Went to Yorkshire TV and said, "We do. We do skittles. We do shove hateney. We do bar billiards. We do darts. It's the pub games that I grew up with." Fred Truman presents it. We were going. To, we were trying to bring it back. I was trying to get Goffy to do it to be, to be Fred. <laughs> Just like, almost like for one night only. Yeah. I mean, knowing Goffy probably would have been up for it. So I'm saying, come on, Goffy, we'll do it. You've just got to be Fred. Because, you know, God bless him. He's the closest thing we've yeah. got to Fred these days, isn't he? So that would have been perfect. But we ne- maybe there's still time at some point anyway. You, you know, you never know. You never. They've, they've brought worse yeah. things back. <laughs> they have. So let's... Go on to the 90s, with, with 90s, and particularly you, at the start of the 90s, this is when you become involved in football, when you launched 90 Minutes magazine with yeah. Dan Goldstein. Mm-hmm. So that was, and that was a kind of, um, a very much a kind of DIY thing from what I can tell. What was your background that led to you being able to launch this magazine? Were you in the football journalism before that? No, not really. I used to, um, Dan, I, I knew Dan, I used to work for a couple of music magazines and Dan was working for them too. We were both big football fans. He was a Palace fan. And it got sort of to about, we sort of talked about football magazines and there, really there was only stuff for a young market. Mm. Uh, there was nothing really for, for a slightly older market. And we'd often sort of sit there over a pint and say, maybe there's room for a weekly that is going to a slightly sort of older age yeah. group and then we just kick some ideas around and like when saturday comes was out there which had that sort of fanzine take on it we thought well is is there something between if you like shoot and match and when saturday comes is there is there a kind of halfway house and it was the maddest idea we basically started this magazine in his back room in blackheath we we wrote most of it we got a few freelancers in and we we kind of put a dummy issue together went to get a bit of support for it and launched it before the 1990 World Cup. And I don't think, had England stunk at the 1990 World Cup and we'd not seen that that interest in football. I mean, it was a mad, you know, it was a mad time. To, football yeah. was not in a good place. This was, I think our first ever issue was April 1990. And uh, thankfully England had a good World Cup and there was a greater interest in football after that. And the magazine then, I think we even called it like, the serious football weekly, which sounds a bit po-faced now, but we didn't mean it like that. I think yeah. Serious was used as a word in a slightly different way then, I think, if I remember rightly. But anyway, it wasn't a fanzine. It was a, a full, fully-fledged magazine, but it took itself a little bit too seriously. But it started to do okay, but fundamentally, we... There's two of us in a back room in, in black. Do, do you remember the address? I found the, the, there's a quote from you where you say what address you have worked in. Do you know? Oh, really? No, I, I can't remember. No. Was it Charlton Road? It is. It's, it's 90 minutes. Started life uh, in March 1990 at 23 Charlton Road, Blackheath, London <laughs> SE3. I don't know why in yeah. your quote you provide the postcode as well. But. <laughs> I, I, I don't <laughs> I don't remember. That's interesting. Uh, this is a quote from you when 90 Minutes closed down. Ah, so, okay. So this is a quote from 1997. Yeah, go on. Give me some more. I mean, I can't remember what I said. Dan Goldstein and I raised five grand through a variety of dubious sources and a further yeah. five grand from a friendly NatWest bank. Yeah. <laughs> Do you, is, that, is that a fair summation of what happened? That is... I don't remember the source being quite as dubious as that. But anyway, yeah, we did... <laughs> 
we did raise that, that money and started the magazine. And one of the things, we, there was no internet. And I'm sure many of the listeners listening to this said, what's he talking about? No internet. But there was no internet. And so we were reliant to get our information, our, our stats, because we tried to put in stats and, and stuff like that. We had a, a Reuters line. We had somebody come in and put in a dedicated dedicated Reuters line. Oh, wow. And uh, which involved, you know, it wasn't like just, it's not like these things, just plug it into the phone point. This thing had to be fully piped in. I think they had to dig up the road. Out. It was ridiculous. <laughs> So just so we could find out, uh, you know, our sort of Atalanta had gone against Sepdoria and put it in the magazine, <laughs> but work it. It was, it was potty. But um, we, we did this. And I remember when Dan sold the flat, it was his place. When he sold the flat, the estate agent came around and put that, on, put that down. As, <laughs> as a benefit. The, the things in the house. Yeah, you know, it's a lovely back room. You get a double bed in that. It's lovely views, south-facing garden. Oh, yeah, there's a point for a dedicated Reuters line. <laughs> if you're ever looking to compile like a, a, a weekly football magazine, then it's, it's all set up for you. So, uh... This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. I was traveling internationally last year. I was in Mallorca. I didn't know the island well. I said, let me head to the north, head towards the water. Let me go on Hotels.com and see what they have available. Something preferably on the beach, maybe even a gym. Not only did I get those things, there was a kid's session with exercise, gymnastics in the water, pony rides, a train. It had everything, and I didn't even want any of those things. But at least I knew they were there, just in case I changed my mind. And now finding the perfect hotel has never been easier thanks to the Hotels.com app. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly, right, all-inclusive or a relaxing spa weekend, you can find exactly what you need and compare hotel prices, ratings, and amenities side by side. So start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Do you remember what was the, what was your first big scoop? Like, do you remember the first big story you got hold of? Wow, I'm just trying to think. Finally, trying to set up the first interviews because we didn't know anybody, we didn't know any agents, and so we decided 
we decided uh, for we had Peter Beardsley on the first cover. Right. So you know, went for a bit of glamour. <laughs> and uh... that is, you can't pick anyone from '97, a least appealing cover star. <laughs> oh no, it was it was it was it wasn't a close up. It was an action shot. Uh, so that is my only defence. <laughs> so in his Liverpool kit, he was a great player yeah, at the time, yeah. of course. So we had uh, Peter on the cover, but we I did a when I did an interview with Paul Stewart. Oh, yeah. Who'd just gone, you know, who not made the greatest start at Spurs. And I remember the agent, his agent said to me, I contacted the agent because we didn't know what we were doing. I just said, I'd like to talk to Paul Stewart. And the agent said, cost you a grand. I mean, you know, 1990. <laughs> I said, we haven't got that sort of money. We're two blokes in a back room. You know, I said, I'm a Tottenham fan. I'll give him a good press. I think he started to play well. I've watched him when he wasn't playing quite so well. But it's an interesting story. It's a, and he said, he phoned me back. He said, all right, 500 quid. I said, look, we haven't got 500 quid. He said, all right, then, 250 quid. I said, no, <laughs> let's forget this. So he phoned up in the end and said, we'll do it over a Chinese and you can pay for the Chinese. So, <laughs> so, there we are. so that's, that's, I remember, I think is what happened. So I went along. We had a Chinese meal with Paul Stewart and did this, I think, one of his first interviews. I don't know, what, you know, was never going to win any Pulitzer Prizes. It wasn't a stunner. But, I mean, we weren't really a magazine about scoops, really. I think it was yeah. more about an approach, a style of writing about football, maybe, that was a little bit different from, from what was out there. But we kind of very quickly realised we couldn't run the business and the magazine at the same time. So we went looking for help um, from a couple of small publishing companies, all smallish. And Dennis Publishing bought the magazine, a guy called Felix Dennis. Who's he's a, a kind of legend. No longer with us. He was a legend. Yeah, he, he is. He founded Oz Magazine in the 60s, didn't he? And he was a kind of legend of the magazine industry. And a man completely fired up by the fact that the judge in the Oz trials uh, said, you are by far the least intelligent of the defendants. And, uh, and he went on to obviously to be incredibly successful. That's why uh, he wanted the serious football magazine, to prove his intelligence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before you, you're in with Dennis Publishing, how are two blokes in 23 Charlton Road, Blackheath, getting their magazine yeah. in Smith's or getting your magazine seen by people or selling advertising or any of these things? How does that work right. in those days? Well, we were, I mean, we were, we were killing ourselves, basically. I said, I would, if, I, if I knew now, if I knew then what I knew now, I never, ever would have done it. It was madness. I mean, we were massively under-resourced. The only way to do it was to, was to barely sleep, to barely see anybody. And that's why, in the end, we had, to, we had to go looking for help because this is going to kill us. We did have we had sort of freelancers who got in touch. As soon as they saw the magazine, people would get in touch. And they'd say, I've got this interview. I've done that. I can get to... And we started to do that. And advertising, we, we sold bits and pieces. A few people came to us and we, you know, we, we did a little bit of that. So, it, it, you know, we realized very quickly we had bitten off potentially more than we could chew. And so the choice was for one of us to run the business and the other one to write. But both of us wanted to write. And that's why we started it. So we said, look, let's get someone else to do the business side. You know, So that's why we went off. Did you see a big change in... Like you say, like Italian 90 was the perfect time and all that. Yeah. But did, could you literally see that with how many people were reading the magazine? Like, were you one of the first people in a weird way to notice that football was just blowing up in that way? Yeah. And I think that helped sell it as well. I think it's had England sort of crashed out of the group stage. David Platt um, hadn't scored against yeah. Belgium. Yeah, that's right. I guess yeah, that's a very good point. Goals, um, little moments like that, you know, Gary Lineker being brought down against Cameroon, all these little turning points. 
And I actually think it's not just us. I think the whole football industry could have been, I mean, it, it may have still blown up. Would there have been a Premier League without a successful Italian 90? I, I don't think there would have been the interest that there was two years later. Italian 90, I think, absolutely transformed football totally and utterly. And uh, that that run made such a big difference. So I, I think... I think it was pretty seminal, really. And, and I, we just noticed afterwards, just the interest in football after that World Cup from, you know, uh, Gazza in the force press on the open top bus coming back from Luton. That felt like a real turning point after so a pretty dark five years for football, everything that had gone on, uh, stadium disasters and arguments about TV money and games not being shown on telly. Um, and so it was, it was, it was, I mean, it's hard to believe now that it was that huge. Just uh, yeah. England getting to a semi-final was was that huge. And you say you had like Peter Beardsley on the front cover of the first one, but obviously you've got people yeah. like Paul Gascoigne kicking around. And you, know, you hear things like from, my, you know, things about how, how much the cover star of a magazine affects it. But was that a big deal? If you're putting Paul Gascoigne on the front of 90 Minutes, you selling 50,000 more copies, is it literally... Could you see those kind of things? Yeah, maybe later on. I think that was more. That was probably more in, in that in that sort of. I don't know. I don't know if the covers made that much difference. I mean, right. we did. I mean, I'm looking at some covers now from '91. Uh, if you had exclusive interviews or you had this, I'm looking at some covers. I've got the cover from was it December 1991? The cover line is. Just how good is Ryan Giggs when he was a young whippersnapper? We've got we did it. We've got an interview with Wrighty in this one, Stuart McCall, and everything you wanted to know about Liverpool, etc. So it's all that. You know, it was quite it's quite starry. It's quite of its yeah. time. You know, this is this is ninety one. The magazine had changed really and, and had a had a bit more focus about it. Can I just say we've all agreed that the words "it's got Stuart McCall" and "it's a bit starry" have been said in the same sentence, yeah. and we've all got. <laughs> <laughs> really yeah. sums up this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> all the big yeah, names. It, it was, and then I've just turned to for some reason I've just turned to January '92 and Stuart McCall's on the cover again. He loves Stuart McCall. <laughs> somebody didn't. Somebody didn't look at the back issue. That's not great. Wow. Um, I wondered. We were just saying that like names like Gazzo, obviously going to Italy, Inse, Italy, yeah. Platt, and Waddle in the south of France. I was wondering, did you get to go on many jollies? Like, did you get the opportunity to go interview one of these English players playing abroad and get like a little weekend away in there? I did. I did later on because I did some stuff. Um, probably more in the latter days of ninety minutes. Yeah, I, I went over and did. I did some stuff with David Platt actually over. Uh, in Italy and, and spent some spent a kind of few days with him, uh, interviewed him, watched the Samp game with him. I went there watching play, but I think he got booked so he couldn't play. But that was fascinating watching it, watching Samp Doria, and he was telling me he was telling me all the watching. He said, "Watch what Hullet does here. It's, it's always a joy when you get to watch a game with a pro." Yeah, and okay. Hullet was playing for them at the same time. So yeah, I got I got some jobs. I went off to the World Cup draw ahead of the ninety. 94 World Cup and I went off to the I did both draws I did the one in Vegas and uh, which was the kind of one where they chose the groups and the initial draw in uh, in New York so it started once once we'd gone to Dennis and uh, there was a little bit more funding it wasn't just two of us killing ourselves in in Charlton Road Blackheath uh, <laughs> then then it was then it was uh, yeah there was a, we, we were able to do a little bit more and push a little bit more and get and get better content and build a team of 
uh, some journalists, have some regular journalists and a regular team working on the magazine. Did you um, have any disasters with people that just didn't take to you or didn't buy into what you were trying to do? We had one, uh, I mean, a couple of times. What would happen is stringers, uh, journalists would sort of say, oh, I've interviewed X and he's given me a great interview saying how unhappy he is and how he wants out. And you take these in good faith because, we had, again, we hadn't been around long enough to know that you get a few rogue ones, uh, basically, that are just looking for self. And it, we had a story about a player. I can't remember who the player was. And it was absolute bollocks. <laughs> it was basically, he made it up. This journalist had effectively just made it up. So the player in question started contacting us and said, what's all this about? I've not said any of this stuff. And like you kind of, you learn along the way, you know, you just, it's hard to believe. So there was someone out there thinking for whatever it was worth to come up with, you know, a thousand words of comments and quotes from a from a footballer that you would just you'd expand on it and just put words into their mouth they never said, called him all sorts of grief with his manager, all the local papers picked up the massive shitstorm. <laughs> just oh, so you know, you you're kind of you're sort of learning on the job. Yeah. I don't think that goes on anymore. I'd like to think not. Uh, but um yeah, there were some mad things that used to that used to go on like that all the time. And being a weekly is just so mm. that must come around so quickly. I can't believe the scale of the team. I, I imagine there was loads of you. Literally the two of you initially just writing that week after week. That is it must be mentally so draining. Yeah, it was. As I said, it was it was I mean we, we started to build a team. When we got the Dennis and there's more funding, we had much more of a focus on the magazine. We had much more of an idea of what we wanted to do with it. And we had because, I mean, I don't think it was selling fantastically well when we first got the Dennis. We had a sort of sit down and we said, okay, what do we want this magazine to be? And uh, we decided we wanted it to have a kind of – Smash Hits was a very popular magazine at the time. We wanted it to be a kind of – something that had the sensibility, had the feel of a sort of football smash hits. Yeah. That, that wasn't a fanzine, was mainstream, was colourful, was going to kids. You know, if, if, if the average age group, I don't know what they might be about, sort of. 13 to about 18 or something like that and then they might leave it behind they might start buying when saturday comes but at the moment maybe at 12 13 a bright kid does want some posters he wants a bit of a laugh he wants a bit of a piss take a bit of piss taking in the copy uh, and so we said we want something that's got that kind of feel that sort of football smash hits was the easiest thing to hang it on yeah you cover lines that would drag you in with the spirit of the fanzines but with the feel of a of a kind of mainstream football magazine that's what we were aiming for and, and how big did it get like it felt to me like when i was a kid it was a big deal like it was like we i'd get 90 minutes and it was you know it was one of the main football magazines and that was a really big time for publishing like it was a real high point for publishing in the 90s so what kind of do you, do you remember what kind of numbers would be reading 90 minutes magazine we were in, in around 93 i think at the start of the 93 season 93, 94, around that time, we, we, we were selling 100,000 copies, oh, wow. um, uh, which at the time was pretty, I mean, shoot was still, I mean, the kids' market was bigger. Yeah. But this was a market that hadn't existed really before. The kids' market was, you know, I think shoot was selling about four and 300,000 copies. Match was selling similar numbers every week at that yeah. time. And we, we kind of created a market that was now selling a, a, a 100,000 copies because it then went on after Dennis sort of sold it, went off to IPC magazines, which is obviously a huge, uh, which owned Shoe and owned World Soccer, uh, et cetera. So they were, and they just, they could see there was a, there was a kind of gap in, in the football magazines they owned. It, they owned. And uh, 
they then took the magazine on. But um, yeah, we, I mean, we were selling around that. Normally, at the, you know, you always sell more magazines at the start of the season because everybody at that point thinks they could win the league. That obviously gets drummed out of them in about three weeks. <laughs> and then, also, do you see a drop off throughout the season? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. you definitely do. Your first, your first <laughs> five or six copies of the season. Uh, you know, you'd, you'd see your biggest. No sales. way! And I would then, never think that. And then the, the flotsam would fall by the wayside <laughs> as your as, as your team ended up in tenth. You think, oh bollocks! To that. I don't want to read about. I don't want to read about this anymore. I'm going to so, read Melody um, Maker. Yeah, I'm going to go and go and do something that doesn't upset. Me. So uh, yeah, so you know, you would. You'd see a big drop off. All even the kids, mags to an extent, maybe not as much as us but you would see a drop off after i mean not ridiculous like going to the 90s and stuff but but the magazine was at that period with the support of ipc and what we built on it was sort of selling sort of hundred thousand copies around that and when you're the same publisher as shoot and um world mm. soccer and stuff and you, i know that, like there's other stories of this like melody maker and enemy were the same company and they'd have this rivalry and stuff was there any rivalry were you you know were you friendly with the guys from shoot in the are they in the same building as you is that how it worked yeah they were yeah i mean look they were, they were quite distinct markets at mm. that time i mean that changed that started to blur a little bit the market got the football magazine market started to get a bit muddy when we kept talking about doing a monthly we felt we kept, we we talked about the idea of a monthly football magazine and as we were doing that 442 came out so yeah. they they kind of stole a gallop and then we did a magazine called goal uh, which was a sort of monthly oh, was that you magazine. Guys? That was your, yeah. So, oh, I liked that. That I, I was a really good goal. I thought that was the funniest yeah. of the three, if you include Total Football was the other one, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so we, we we decided that, that we could – I mean, it was that's what we – we had to have a point of difference, 442. 442 was great and a lot of very good writers on it. It was an excellent magazine, but it mm. was, again, a pretty formal, straight magazine at that point. And we thought – we wanted loaded was part of the the setup at IPC, and again we wanted a kind of something that maybe had the sensibilities of loaded. And there was a lot of um, so we could kind of that's the direction we went in. Goal was a bit more, I don't know, maybe a bit more rock and roll. Really, that was yeah. the, that was the approach we took on that, and we used some loaded writers. Some of the writers who worked with us went off to work on loaded. It wasn't a massive crossover, but there was some crossover and. That's, that was the point of difference. But, yeah, so the market started to get quite fragmented. One of the things that we used to do on 90 Minutes was uh, a bunch of us, we would take a rotor, but we'd go in late on a Saturday night and put the numbers going together, the kind of stats pull out. Yeah. And this was an era when none of the papers did this. But really, there was no particularly good stat service in the newspaper, especially the tabloids and uh, or the broadsheets. And then they started to take football more seriously. You start to see more football pullouts in all of the mainstream media. And it kind of killed off some of, and then you just get a bit more funny writing as well. You know, you get good stuff in the Observer or the Guardian, mm. or you get some funny writing in the Sun or the Mirror. And the point of difference, the kind of USP of 90 minutes just started to be eroded away a little bit. What what had been a bit of an outlier was now sort of becoming the mainstream and, yeah. and 90 minutes sales suffered, which ultimately led to it closing a few years later because the monthly market took over. The yeah. weekly sort of died off and the monthly's become the big thing. And how did that feel having started it? At that point, it's 1997 when it's closing. Do you feel yeah. like, oh, what an incredible journey? Or is it like heartbreaking well, to I'd, see that thing that you started? Well, yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd gone on, I'd, I became the sort of editor of Goal and I sort of the editor-in-chief 
of all the football mags. I went off and, and I sort of oversaw mm. shoot and world soccer and, and other stuff that IPC did on the football front. So uh, I, I did feel for the team because they were still producing a good magazine. But as I said, it was just, we just saw this mo- this market erode more and more and more. And that so that interest just dying away. And that wasn't to do with the quality. It was more about, it was more about what was happening out there in the market. So it was, it was, I had to kind of oversee it. Although I went off and worked at Chelsea uh, Football Club uh, uh, after, in the sort of late uh, 90, well, about, when was it, about May 1997. I left before the end of 90 minutes. And one more question on that building, which I'd be mm. fascinated to know. Was the office of Loaded, which was presumably in that building, everything yeah. you imagined it to be? Oh yeah, definitely. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was. We were we were in the next office. Yeah, we were in the next office, <laughs> and um, yeah, you get some quite interesting characters uh, rocking up sometimes at the uh, at, at the uh, the load office. But James, uh, I've always got well with James Brown. He was obviously a massive football fan, still a huge Leeds fan, and Tim Southwell, who who were the two guys on Loaded. So there was a bit of cross-pollination. They'd come into us, we'd go into them, and there was a little roof terrace that for some reason Loaded had been given a shed to put on. And in the shed had a... What <laughs> I was doing there. The shed had a fridge in it, and the fridge was always full of, whether it was booze or ice creams or something or other. And we had free run of it. Like oh, it, was, wow. it was a fairly it was a fairly mad time, and, and a lot of mad stuff would go on in their office and we watched a fair bit of it unfold so yeah it's probably if you imagine it and then times it by about 10 that's exactly what it was like <laughs> it sounds like the best time to be in publishing it was yeah i mean you know you kind of look at the magazine market now it's 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 tough you know there's so many more yeah. distractions so many other ways people can get information um but it was it was a, it was a it was a good time that sort of mid-90s period around that sort of 94 world cup and when Loaded was starting up in sort of ninety-five-ish, it was yeah, it was an exciting time to be involved in a in an industry like this. We used to have some good giveaways in ninety minutes. Funny enough, I I found um, the old playing cards. I don't know if you remember the set of ninety minutes playing cards. God. That we it was a cover giveaway uh, at the start of one season, and there are some fantastic photographs of. I mean, it was in the days when this sort of nineties era, when footballers, you know, they they didn't care about their image. They didn't yeah. care about self-image. And there was one famous photographer, a guy called Monty Fresco, sadly no longer with us, but a legend. Monty took the uh, Gaza um, Vinnie Jones picture oh, uh, yeah, the, yeah. when he's uh. grab, grabbing him by the nuts and that famous picture. Monty took that. But he also was one of these guys that would pop along. Like I've got, I'm looking at now, I'm looking at the, the Ten of Spades, which is Brian Robson with a rose in his mouth wearing a matador hat. <laughs> Gurning, gurning. Uh, and I go on to the Nine of Diamonds, which is Alan Smith uh, in a sort of preppy outfit wearing a cravat with oh, a straw wow. boater. Oh, wow. And these, aren't, uh, I've got, these are going straight into eBay, 90 minutes playing cards. I've got to get, I've got to get a copy <laughs> of these. Yeah, they are great. We've got um, Trevor Francis holding a koala. I think it was on the Australian oh, tour. Oh, wow. So Peter Beardsley, our old mate Peter Beardsley, dressed as a jockey. Andy Gray's the four of hearts. He's wearing a lumberjack coat, a lumberjack hat, and <laughs> holding an axe. But what, what, what would happen is when England players went on tour, for example, I've got David Hurst here uh, on Bondi Beach uh, holding a, uh, a surfboard because, you know, England players would go on tour and, and the photographers who were there, they'd say, here, be a love day. 
just put, just hold this surfboard, stand in the water. Yeah, Trev, hold this koala. <laughs> and rather than being surrounded by agents and players saying, no, I'm going to look like a dick, I'm not doing that, they would do it. They would just say, oh, yeah, no trouble. No trouble, Monty. Uh, they would just basically, I've got Dennis Wise and uh, Jeff Thomas in fezzes. I think England were playing Turkey in Izmir. So they just, somebody says, yeah, put these fezzes on. I mean, it's just... Probably doesn't even work culturally, <laughs> but put these fezzes on. That's incredible. There's a great one around the 91 FA Cup. It's Roy Keane, young Roy Keane, dressed as Robin Hood. Wow, imagine he's, he's having got a little hat, hat with a feather holding a bow. I, I've seen imagine that. Him picture. Him to do that yeah. Yeah. Imagine yeah. that outload. <laughs> the bravery to ask. And then he does it. But they were up for it then. They say they didn't care. I mean, it, so it was, uh, that's why we were able to do these playing cards because we had. So many of these players in just ridiculous poses. Have you got, so have you got all of the old 90 minutes, like in a kind of... Well, I, I've, I've actually got, I don't think I've got a complete set. I've got some, my mum bought them all. She would buy it every week. Oh. And it, I didn't realise for years she was buying it. And so when I, I, I've got these binders, so I've got some of them in binders. And knowing we were going to have a chat, I just dug a couple out of the, oh. the garage. And I quite enjoyed it. I, said, I, went, I just kind of went down a bit of a rabbit hole looking at all of these. And when you read them, does um, it, do you, is it familiar? Do you go, I remember that, I remember that. Or is it, is it like something, a magazine you've never read before? Like, do you remember all these moments and covers? Do you remember John Gannon going for the top eight? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, not to that extent. We've had, I mean, we used to have a thing at the back. Uh, we used to have sort of uh, some sort of silly, short little stories. Mm. And uh, some of those I read and I and I, I remember those. We used to, um, I'm trying to think of some, some of the things that used to go on. I mean, we used to get this thing. We, we used to have, uh, like, it used to be like a sad fan of the week. And I remember once there was some Newcastle fans who'd, uh, who'd gone come down to watch uh, Newcastle play Spurs. And, and you know they've been outed by their friends because they'd gotten off they got off at Tottenham Court Road and were asking people where the ground was <laughs> at twenty to three things like that. And we had another my we had a, a, another one which was Dean Dean Austin, the old uh, Spurs player uh, who'd gone back to watch his old club South End play, but gone in his Tottenham tracksuit, <laughs> so which was not not formed. And so a couple of the South End players outed him. And sent us the photographic evidence, my sad ex-teammate. So, uh, yeah, looking at some of that sort of stuff from 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 this era is fascinating. It, it feels like the, like a similar kind of sense of humour to then go to fantasy football league. But how did you end up from someone who's kind of in charge of a bit a group of magazines at IPC and then working at Chelsea? How did you end up working on what was the biggest comedy football show on TV then in 1998. How did that move happen? Uh, I used to, I knew Frank a bit because Frank had did a column for 90 minutes. So um, I dealt with Frank before and I was, I've been at Chelsea for about just over a year. Mm. Well, what were you doing? What were you doing at Chelsea? I was, I was nominally the head of media, but ah. um, <laughs> it was, I, I, I kind of went in, uh, Ken Bates asked me to go in there and do a few things. And Did he personally ask you? Yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah, it was, yeah, by someone else like? sort of reached out. Well, that was all right. I always got, you know, it, it, he, he was, he wasn't, he is, and I'm, I'm sure he still is, I haven't seen him for years, but he is a quite incredible character <laughs> uh, to work to work for uh, because, it's, you know, the maddest sort of things would go on. And, he, he, you know, it was never a dull moment. I mean, I'd often get in the office 
and he would have opened all my posts and answered it for me. He'd kind of, I'd, see him, I'd see in his scratchy writing, like I'd open them, somebody requesting something, he'd say, tell them no, this one's yes. Um, not sure, come and see me about this. I thought, he'd just come in and just open my post. He'd tell me this is business. He could do what he liked. So when they were building Chelsea, he was so massively hands-on when they were putting the hotel up. You'd wander around the stadium with him and like a couple of blokes in hard hats having a sandwich. They'd probably been working since six. And he's saying, boy, get up, get on with the job. I've got this place open. It was like, it's just some mad old uncle touring the place, driving Amazing. everybody mad. It was, but it was, it was, it was a, an interesting period, but it wasn't him. I always got well with him. There was a lot of politics at the place and I wasn't enjoying the job. And, and Andy Jacobs, who was producing them all, was just about to start work on Fantasy World Cup. And that was going to be a live show every day for a month. So it was very labor intensive. And um, he ne- he kind of felt he needed some help. And he just phoned me up and said, uh, I'm looking for a couple of junior researchers to work on on this series. And I'd only ever spoke to Andy sort of once before. I didn't know him very well. And then I don't know what made me sad. I just sort of found myself blurting out. I was outside of the office. I was just outside the club. And I said, um, you haven't got anything for me. And he said, I, I, think I'm, I think this has run its course. I've got to get out of here. It's not working for them or for me. And Andy said, oh, well, OK, well, look, leave that with me. So he went and saw David and Frank and, and then he, he came back to me and said, look, you know, we need we, we, you could be a football producer. You could produce all the, the football side of things from my point of view. We've got a lot of phoenixes to organise. You know, there's some writing to be done. There's ideas to come up with, uh, sort of content ideas. So they were both Frank and David King to get me on. And Andy was as well. So I went off and did that. But uh, I mean. There was, a, there was a really good team of people already on it, working on the show. So I just sort of slotted in and added to that and took some of the sensibilities of things like 90 minutes of goal sort of into that because it, it dovetailed anyway because, as you said, it, gosh, it, was quite, it was quite similar in its outlook, really. Did you, what was it like, like, organising the Phoenixes? Like, like the, you're relying on the players and then are you sending them the script? Because there must be times when, I mean, I've been on TV shoots where you're asked to do stuff out of nowhere that you don't really want to do. And that yeah. there's a lot of players there that are being sent up while they're there in a very friendly way on the Phoenix and stuff. But like, was was, was that a, a tense thing to try and work through at any points? Um, I remember a couple, I, I, I appeared in a, in a couple oh, did you? as well, you know, occasionally because they, we would just be the extras. If you were going down there, then you'd be cast to play. I remember being in the Terry Butcher the Terry Butcher Phoenix when he the Sweden game when he cuts his head open. Yeah. And I played Gary Stevens, the old Everton fullback yeah. Gary Stevens. Although, you know, the sort of work that they could do down at uh, Hendon Football Club to get us, uh, to, you know, to make it look authentic. It was always a bit sketchy. You know, it wasn't, uh, you know, it wasn't a top class makeup yeah. job. And I remember I had this, I had this sort of, this sort of white Marilyn Monroe like blonde wig that they'd restarted, like Youth of Joyce from from Georgia Mildred, less than I did uh, Gary Stevens. And we, but I was in this Phoenix, and I remember on the day, um, Steve Hodge, for some strange reason, uh, the old England Steve Hodge, in that match when England had played Sweden, had been part of the Swedish coverage, and Andy had gone searching for the English coverage of that game, couldn't find it, and the only thing they could clear of that game was the Swedish coverage. <laughs> So they use that with Steve Hodge. I was chatting to Steve earlier in the day, and I said, well, look, thanks for coming down to do this, Steve. He said, oh, I've forgotten. I'd done the Swedish coverage. He said, I was, you know, I've been looking to get in and do a little bit of media. And I, I knew at that point he hadn't read the script. 
because oh, his only role in this was to have a bucket of fake blood thrown over him. <laughs> that was all. That was all he was there for. And I think it, I think Steve Sighty saw it as a passport to appear as a talking head on mainstream yeah. football oh, shows. God. And then I remember just that moment when Terry Butcher walks past, and then the bucket of blood comes over. Terry gets soaked. Steve gets soaked. And I think I might have been the one who had to go up and say, um, well, that's it, Steve. You're done there. You can, uh, you know, <laughs> go and get, thanks. And he just looked a bit nonplussed. We didn't want his take on the formation that day. And what marks he would have given Terry out of 10. You, see, you know, that was, that was a very, very strange night. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with The Fall Guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. He's got a big... You know that Steve Hodge, he doesn't need to worry about media work or money because yeah. you know he's the owner of the Mar- Maradona shirt. That's right. I asked him about that. Oh, I mean, did I asked you? him about that. And I said, is it, is it in a safe somewhere? He said, oh, yeah, yeah. He was, keep, he was keeping a bit still about that. He, he didn't quite let on. It's probably in a bank vault somewhere because it is, it's a hell of an insurance policy, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's nice to know that, that it's there. And uh, yeah. Shouldn't he just sell it? Can we talk about this? Like, why hasn't he flogged it? It doesn't... Oh, when does it, when does it peak? I wonder. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, sadly, you know, he's, he's maybe had that window, hasn't he? Well, I don't know. And maybe as time goes on, you know, you're not going to get any other Maradona memorabilia anymore. That ship has sailed. So, yeah. I mean, and this is such an iconic shirt. I mean, there's definitely a sort of Scottish football collector out there somewhere who'll give him millions, <laughs> give him millions, give him millions for it. The other one we had, guys, was um, when we did the Jürgen Klinsmann. Uh, I had to deal with Jürgen Klinsmann's uh, agent as we tried to do the the 1990 uh, World Cup final and the quite and it was the sort of fairly elaborate dive uh, in that game. And David and Frank had written the script and he had said he would do it and he wanted all the money to go to Bernardo's, which was a lovely thing to do. He didn't want paying for it. He said he would do it. And um, the guys wrote the script and I we sent it to um, Klinsman's uh, agent. And I'm not, I don't know if it was the agent doing this, having spoken and met Jürgen since. It doesn't strike me that he would have had a hand in this. But at that time, the agent came back to me and said, look, he'll do it, but you're going to have to cut out the diving. I said, well, that's that's what it's all about. <laughs> he said, he's not doing any of this ironic shit. 
And we said, well, that's, that's if you clearly not watch this show. So it was all a bit of a nightmare. So in the end, whether it was him or the agent, but he didn't do it. Oh. And we had to then track down uh, Pedro Monzon, the guy who, who fouled him to get sent off, the first man ever to be sent off in a World Cup oh, final, yeah. uh, an Argentinian player. And he took some tracking down because he was working in a gym, um, just kind of at a job, working in a fitness centre in the wilds of Argentina. Eight years after playing in the World Cup final. Yeah, and he was just, you know, he wasn't really doing much, so it took a hell of a lot of tracking down. And uh, we finally did, and he came over and we did it. They basically rewrote the Phoenix from his angle, and somebody else played Klinsman, and, uh, you know, a sort of tumbler came in, was the yeah. back somersaults and throwing himself around playing Klinsman. And, of course, Bernardo's never got their money, so <laughs> when we recorded fantasy football that night, we had a, there was a load of Victorian street urchins banging tins and, uh, on the <laughs> gates of Capitol Studios in London. So please, Jürgen, where's our money? So yeah, and that was in that that was in that night's show. So um, amazing, I'm, I'm, like that must be an amazing way to experience the World Cup, just working on it like that. It was, yeah, it was. It was a good. I mean, it was really hard work because it was a live show. I mean, you know what that's like. So a live show, but doing a live show every day, seven days a week during the World Cup every day for a month, um, producing producing a live show. So it was... That was the one... It was, it was hard work. Was that the one where there was Johnny Rock... Uh, John, John Lydon yeah. was thrown off, was he? Yeah, or? yeah, that's right. We had a couple of... We had two. We had um, Bridget Nielsen that Andy yeah. had to oh. uh, have a word with during the break. Because obviously it's live. There was not, well, not a great deal you could do. Yeah, um, but often they're the ones that people remember. I remember after those shows, all of us were like shell shots and oh, that was a disaster. Bridget Nielsen yeah. was a disaster, and uh, John Lydon was a disaster. But they're the you know people lapped it up. They're the ones that that people remember because yeah. you know people love it, love it when it goes wrong. What's it like for someone to have to tell John Lydon that you're not going to do the second half of this show? That's like a yeah. that's he's, a scary chance. That's worse than yeah. making Roy Keane dress as Robin Hood, if you ask me. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I mean, there's, I think there's, there's an element of the sort of panto villain yeah. about him as well. And I think he, you know, I don't know if he was flogging a new album or whatever, but, but you know, he got a certain amount of notoriety from that. But I think he wanted to go back out there. But again, for, for a small man, Andy Jacobs is quite intrepid. And he was, he was like, I think he's like, he was like Frank and Dave's attack dog. I, mean, they call, I think Frank calls him in his autobiography like kind of Roy Keane of the production because he would be prepared to go out to John Lyon and say, you're not going out there for the second half, you're ruining the show. And oh, I think man. with the help maybe of a couple of burly security guards, um, John Lyon decided that, oh, that he wouldn't go out there for the second half. So it was, it was mad doing these, you know, they were they were just crazy shows to be doing every night, but they, but they were a lot of fun. And were you watching loads and loads? Because you went on to um, do TV Burp, which, yeah. which um, from what I can kind of glean, is lots of sitting around for hours and hours watching TV, trying to find yeah. little bits. And did you kind of come up with that? Did you find that muscle when you were doing fantasy football? Is that the kind of thing you were yeah. doing? I guess, yeah. I mean, we were watching lots and lots of games. So you're watching, you know, you're watching games in a different way. You're just, uh, and this is a time sort of pre-internet. Uh, again, when you're getting the first hit at this, uh, you know, it'd be so much more difficult to do a show. Like the games would finish at 
um, for the for the stuff we'd seen that night during games. So you just get you just you get used to watching watching but not watching. You're not watching the action to the yeah. extent. You're watching what's going on in the background. You're watching all the peripheral stuff. So you have to find a way to tune out from from actually just watching the game. And when when there were live when it was England matches, I mean, trying to look for the funny stuff. <laughs> In, in the sort of, that night that England played Argentina when Sol Campbell had that perfectly good oh. header ruled out and we were robbed and you know that evening in '98 that was incredibly hard you know yeah. great. I mean ultimately you're looking for clips that you can turn around in 40 minutes that can be played out live because the games would end at 10 and then Stato and, and Jeff Astle would go on and say join us after the the news when we're at Fantasy Football World Cup live so so that, and then that was it you had 40 minutes to sort of go in. Pitched to Frank and Dave said, I saw this, you know, 23 minutes, 15 seconds, guy in the crowd picking his nose or or whatever. And then you're quickly rushing through all that stuff. You put a clips reel together and you were oh, watching, man. they were watching stuff 10 minutes before they went on saying, yeah, that's in, that's in. We're going to write a line for that. We'll try and write a line, oh. bring them a line so they didn't have to do that. And like, they would often be sort of, they'd be in makeup. You'd be showing them stuff more or less in makeup or talking them through it and saying, right, that clip's in. So it was Blimey. real sort of seat of the pants stuff, but yeah. but yeah, watching old games. Going back, I used to, we used to love watching old opening ceremonies of World Cups. Uh, yeah. You know, going back to the fifties and the sixties and all this old archive stuff, and especially the seventies. The you know they always involved lots of kids forming a map of whichever country it was going to be. <laughs> that's all. Yeah. That's all. That's always Such a standard. staple. Of yeah. course, yeah, that's right. <laughs> so, but yeah, that was. So, you know, going back and watching games that you knew very well, looking for content around Phoenix, especially if you're doing a Phoenix, uh, you'd have to go back and watch the game that that Phoenix was built around and pretty forensically. We would watch it. Frank and Dave would watch it. Andy would watch it. Some of the other guys on the production would watch it as well. And between us, we'd, we'd kind of find the content. Did, did you have any, like, one clip that you are most proud of finding? Or, like, was there anything where you're like, you remember finding it and going, oh, my God, yes. I remember finding, I can't remember, they were t- somehow fine art featured in, in something. And I went out and there was, again, no internet. So I went down the library and spent a whole day at the library and found some pretty good footballing lookalikes and these sort of um, renaissance paintings. Oh, wow. I remember taking, and I found, I, I found Glenn Hoddle, Gary Neville, and uh, yeah, it was mainly Glenn Hall, Gary Neville, and somebody else. Three people in one Renaissance painting. Oh, wow. and uh, that was used that night. So I've got a great deal of pride uh, from that. That was yeah. one that springs to mind. But yeah, that was that was fun. I, I, I just want to ask you about you mentioned there when the night England went out to Argentina in '98, and then having to do fantasy football afterwards. I remember us losing that and obviously being crushed and thinking, oh, well, at least fantasy football is going to be on and it'll cheer me up. And I just remember Frank and David were just, they were inconsolable. And the, the yeah. whole, it was the weirdest fantasy episode of fantasy football because they were just crushed. There was, it must have been so hard to work on that show having, say, having just witnessed that. Yeah, we were all on the floor because I think that was, I think that was the strength of it really because that was the mood. Yeah. There was no yeah. point, you know, they were proper England football fans. They still are. And there was no sense of saying, well, anyway, we're here to cheer up the nation. You know, we all felt the shit. They felt shit. Everybody at home did. Yeah. So that had to be, I mean, and it wasn't put on. That was just the mood. So it was that kind of, it was like half an hour of gallows humour, if I remember rightly. I've done some last legs. We did a last leg American special 
which we thought was mm. going to be about Hillary Clinton becoming president, and that was about Donald Trump. And we did, <laughs> oh, no. we did the Brexit one as well. Uh, and oh. so I've I've been in that position where you think this <laughs> yeah. audience isn't going to laugh. There's nothing, <laughs> <laughs> nothing, nothing <laughs> funny here. But it will be, when they do, it will be really hollow. And, be, and you know how you know how to pitch it when everybody's in that mood, don't you? Yeah. Because you're, you know they're feeling like you are. You know? so, yeah. Yeah, they, they were difficult shows when England when England went out. They were incredibly difficult shows. And do you th- do you think fantasy football's had its day? I mean, there's always rumours that it could come back. Do you think it could ever come back, or is, do you think it's had its time? I think it could work. I think it would be slightly different. I think there would be a different feel. And as I said, what you wouldn't have is that that first hit because kind of fo- fantasy football sort of predated to an extent soccer. I am going down that route, you know, and but all, most of the funny clips that were out there would be hoovered up by fantasy football uh, on a Friday evening on BBC or by Soccer AM on a, on a Saturday morning. But now, I mean, even when we did the last fantasy football I worked on was one of the Euros. I can't, was it 2004 when the guys brought it back? But that, even that was becoming more difficult, you know, in the turnaround time because, you know, people were spotting stuff. You know, maybe people were seeing things as time went on the internet. Now, if you were producing it, most people in real time are spotting things. You know, if if you think you've spotted something unique in a football match, if you type in that bloke in hat in, in the Everton game, there'll be people who've got screen grabs of it. There'll be people who've noticed it. So t- to have that first run at material where no one else is out there doing it, and no one else has got a way of sort of collating it and regurgitating it and putting it maybe on their own social media, that that would be that's going to be difficult to find content that is is your own and unique. So, but you know, there's there's still other there's other things that made that that show good. So, possibly someone will will look to bring it back. We always end Paul on the uh, on the same mm. question, which uh, feels like a joyful decade. I mean, we haven't obviously brought up that you're a Tottenham fan throughout this, which is kind of <laughs> a, a counterpoint to it. <laughs> but, uh, Chris, would you like to do the final question? Yeah, and the final question we ask every guest is, if we gave you a time machine and allowed you to go back to the 1st of January 1990 and do the whole thing again, would you? Uh, yes, I would, despite the, the worries and the, and, the, and the sleepless nights and the, the virtually killing ourselves to do the magazine. For some of the reasons we've sort of talked about over the last couple of hours, it's like it was uh, our It was a great time. It was, you know, it was a fun time. It was a fun time to be involved in football at a time when, as I said, Italian Knightley transformed it. There was a different feel about football, a different vibe about football at that point. And it was an exciting time to, to, to be involved, to be involved in it. And uh, yeah, no, I, I think I would. Despite everything, I think I would. Oh, wow. And just get Stuart McCaw on that first cover instead of Peter Beardsley. <laughs> yeah. <Just> to... <laughs> Paul Hawksby, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for doing it. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Thanks ever much, so man. much, guys. It was, it was fun. A little trip down memory lane. I did enjoy it. So thank you. That was Paul Hawksby. I absolutely loved that. That was so good. I oh, just lost, just lost in that chat. It was just like a deep, velvety bath or so, you know. Just that was just 
Just loved it. I loved 90 Minutes. I love fantasy football. Love Paul Hawksby. Brilliant. 90s publishing world to be in that building as well with Loaded. and with Loaded. And, and also Shoot. Loaded and Shoot in the same building, mate. What, what a world. <laughs> Imagine the pub around the corner from that office. Greavesy turning up to do his, uh, to do his replies to the letters page every week. <laughs> um, there we go. It was an absolute pleasure. Thank you to Paul. Now, have we got time for a quick quiz? Yeah. Well, should we bring back his... It was a favourite of ours doing the um, doing the first name teams. So basically I'll give you a team by first name from the 90s and the first one to buzz in and get the team right is correct. Fair enough? Yep. Yes. I love this What game. season would you like? 98. Yeah. These are going to be, I'm going to say it, you're going to find an easier, easier situation here because as more foreign players came into the Premier League, it really damaged the length of the first name game. That's all I'm saying. Okay. 98-99 Premier League matches. Opening day of the season. August the 15th, 1998. First to three. Russell. Christian. Jakob. Stefan. Horatio. Lee. Rory. Daryl, Francesca. Is, is it Derby? It is Derby. Oh, well done. Well done. Derby nil-nil away at Blackburn Rovers on the first day of the season. To complete it, you're only two away, which was Dean and Paolo. One nil to Chris. Ready? Yeah. yeah. Casey. Stop. Stop. Oh, it's Scarlet. Tot- Tottenham Hotspur. Incorrect. What? Leicester. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. Michael. No. Michael doesn't even need the rest of the team. <laughs> which is, of course, Matt, Frank, Steve, Steve, Neil, Muzzy, Robbie, Theo, Tony, and Emil. One all. Okay. Brad. Stop. That was at the same time. So, I'm going to need you to both be honest about your answers. Okay. Okay. I'll take Skulls first, but Michael will have to just be honest about his. Blackburn Rovers. Michael? Yeah, Blackburn Rovers as well. Incorrect. Ah! It was Liverpool. <laughs> Brad, Phil, Vegard, Steve, Jamie, Patrick, oh. Paul, Jason, Steve, Michael, oh. and of course, Carl Heinz. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Still one all, is it? Yeah, one all. Yeah. Kevin. Peter. Andy. Des. Stop. Sheffield Wednesday. It is. Yeah. You're just Jace. getting to a very, very rich period for first names. <laughs> Emerson, Juan, <laughs> Wim, Petter, Andy, Benito and Paolo. Kevin as a goalkeeper, I think Pressman. And then when yeah. Des came out of the bag, you're like, this is done. Here he is, offering, a, offer, offering a director's commentary on his correct answer. <laughs> okay, 2-1 to Chris. Sasa. Danny. Stop. Stop. Michael. You're on. I mean, I literally mad shot in the dark. I think it's wrong. But Reading? No. Incorrect. Charlton. Chris to win it. Charlton. He's done it. He didn't even need the rest uh, of the team. Uh, <laughs> well Showboat. <laughs> Sasa, Sasa, Danny, Illich. Richard, Eddie, yeah. Chris, Mark, Sean, Neil, John, Andy, and Clive. Ah. 3-1. That takes us to the end. One of my favourite episodes. Chris, is there any way you'd uh, like to end with? Joe, you know I, I, I think I... I I've spent my whole life wondering if I had to go on to You Bet what my game might be. And I think it is 
guessing the <laughs> guessing the clubs of late nineties teams based on the first names of goalkeepers. So I'd like to sign yeah. off this episode with a theme tune to You Bet, basically. There we go. We've had that once this series already. Oh, have we? Have we? Oh, fuck. Have we? Jesus Christ. I mean, you can have it again if you want. It makes me question how good your memory is for a You Bet style <laughs> challenge. But... Go on, then. Let's have it again. The theme tune to You Bet. I just love it. <laughs> and there's actually, isn't there two versions? There's an earlier one, early 90s one, and a late 90s one. Don't try and pretend that that's what you're doing, Chris. <laughs> I'll leave it up to you thank you for listening this week uh, we'll be back next week if you want even more Quickly Kevin do go over to the Quickly Kevin fan club it's on Patreon go to patreon.com forward slash Quickly Kevin I should add also uh, sorry if I did go silent for a minute during that conversation but um, just so you know halfway through that 8.23 we started at um, what time did we start that 7.30 so 53 minutes into that conversation I got the email from eBay. Your order is confirmed. 90 Minutes magazine set of 52 playing cards plus two jokers. £90.93. £6.99. So that is a delightful thing. We'll put those all on the Instagram. We do a picture of the day on the Instagram. Uh, Do go on because we've got 52 pictures of the day right there for the next 52 days. (laughs) We'll see you next week. Until then, Robbie Slater. See you later. This episode is brought to you by Hotels.com. When I went on my last holiday to Cape Town, it was amazing. My friends were there, the weather was phenomenal, and most importantly, the food was fantastic. But one thing I struggled with was finding the right places to stay. You know, all I want is a great bed, a fantastic shower, and breakfast that doesn't end at 8 a.m. I'm on holiday, I'm still sleeping. I also like ease, and the Hotels.com app easily helps me to find a perfect hotel for every trip. Whether you're looking for a family-friendly getaway or a relaxing spa weekend, on the Hotels.com app, you can compare up to five hotels side by side. Now, why would you want to do that? So you can see prices, amenities, and star ratings. And best of all, you don't have to switch back and forth between options. See? Ease. So, start planning your next getaway and find your perfect somewhere in the Hotels.com app today.